know, the full responsibility of every negative response we get to the gospel does not always rest on the recipient. Think about it. Sometimes the person giving the message bears some responsibility for the rejection. Would you agree with me? I mean, not, not every proclaimer of the gospel has great motives or does so with great humility, right? Frankly, some messengers aren't always aware of their rudeness or their exploitation. I knew in a town next to where I grew up of a preacher who faked his own death, complete with a coffin to make a point. I mean, to me, that is just super gross. It's underhanded, it's manipulative, and there's a stain that is left that, that cheapens a spiritual community when that kind of stuff happens. You know, manipulation can wear a kind of spiritual mask. At the end of service, sometimes you hear a, an invitation. We're all familiar with it. And uh, sometimes we can experience extreme pressure, excessive pressure, uh, protracted appeals that make it difficult to tell the difference between the Holy Spirit doing this or is this just human coercion? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. I'd love to be able to say for CCC, we boast in the Lord. Not any particular person or people, we boast in the Lord and what he has done here. But we just want to make sure that whatever we do, it's the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit's work. Amen? I'm reminded of the gracious words of Paul out of Philippians. It says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, but sincerely, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, Paul, are, are you okaying? You know, that guys are jerks, you know, when they're proclaiming the truth. I don't think that's the message. I think it's more, God is so powerful, God is so big, God is so sovereign that he can use even wrong-headed or, you know, ill motives in the preacher, in the proclaimer, in the person giving the gospel. And before I judge those other guys, I have to remind myself, how many times have I been prideful? How many times have I been selfish? And God has chosen to use it. Maybe he won't bless me specifically in that moment, but he will use it. That's an amazing thing. That only shows how great God is. But there are times in which when you get a negative response, and maybe a dramatic response or resistance that the recipient bears great responsibility. We've had on numerous occasions people get up in a huff and upset when the preaching of the Word of God is done here. I've had uh, years ago one family member call the police on me and another person who was in a home at the invitation 
of another person there, simply giving the gospel. I've been thrown out of a church with two other buddies as we gave our testimony and gave the gospel. And this man was extremely, he was the, pre, he was the minister, extremely upset. They didn't preach the gospel there. And we did. I've had people upset at funerals when I gave the gospel. Now, I can attest that in those cases and in others, when there are negative reactions, or I guess in some that come to my mind, that this was not the occasion of the manipulation of zealots, but that there was something else going on. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those being saved, it's the power of God. The gospel appears so foolish to other people and they can respond very negatively. Now, the Apostle Paul was very familiar with this, right? I mean, we read throughout these last few chapters of Acts, multiple defenses that Paul gives to varying officials after he's been falsely accused. And his real crime? What did he do so wrong? He had the audacity to proclaim that Jesus Christ was indeed risen from the grave and sent from God as the Messiah of his people. And such a uh, proclamation requires a response. And so here in this audience, you have Festus, the governor of Judea, King Agrippa and Bernice, his sister and lover, Agrippa has been summoned to help Festus to kind of give this presentation to Caesar when Paul gets to Rome. And as Paul is giving this defense of the gospel, and specifically the resurrected Christ, we read this, starting with Acts 26, verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense... Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Festus doesn't just express his disapproval, he shouts it. He's emphatic. And what's the basis of the charge? No thinking, rational man would say these things. Paul, your extensive education has caused your mind to turn to mush. I think it's a classic case of what we might call worldview bias. Festus is thinking... A sensible person in the Greco-Roman world understands that people don't rise from the dead. All this talk that Paul has just shows he spent too much time in the Old Testament scrolls. Now, how is this any different than people today who become enmeshed with a naturalistic, evolutionary worldview and cannot fit within their framework, 
that there's some kind of supernatural activity of God in this world. Just doesn't work within their narrative. In 2009, Marilyn Sewell, as a retired minister of the First Unitarian Church in Portland, Oregon, she interviewed Christopher Hitchens, one of the most famous atheists of his time. Now, just to let you know, Unitarians don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in a resurrection. And Hitchens was a avowed atheist. And he, so he doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in any kind of afterlife. And by the way, he died of cancer in 2011. But at the time of this interview, he was writing this great popularity from his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. So you kind of know the thesis of the book just with that title, right? At one point in the interview, this progressive minister asked Hitchens if her Christianity was any different than other kinds. She said this, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kind. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, you know, which is that Jesus died for our sins. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Christopher Hitchens, the atheist, said this. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. <laughs> Boom! There you go. Hitchens is right. There are many who fancy themselves as Christian, but they deny these basic tenets of Christianity. So it doesn't resemble anything of a biblical Christianity. It's something else. They're certainly free to believe whatever they want. You just can't call it any kind of biblical Christianity. I mean, people who do that and say the Bible is chock full of mistakes, I just wonder, what are you doing even wasting your time then preaching from it? I don't get it. Amen. It's an amazing thing. But Paul expresses to Festus there is no kind of anti-intellectualism going on here. There's no inconsistency or hypocrisy at work because the gospel is true and rational. Look at the historical record. Look at the hundreds of witnesses. And more importantly, look at the Old Testament prophets and what they had to say. And now remember, Paul did not have a finished New Testament with him. These early Christians did not have that. All they had was the Old Testament. And the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. It's crazy to me that ministers today want to get rid and show disdain for the Old Testament but embrace Jesus. They have no clue that the Old Testament central message was pointing to Jesus. And so... The point is, is that God has a bevy of witnesses, including the, the physical witnesses, the Old Testament, the historical record, that make a case for Christ and his resurrection. 
And instead of a dichotomy between faith and reason, we can, we can safely reach a verdict that God can be loved, as Jesus said in Matthew 22, with all our mind. I'm appreciative of that. That God is not asking us to check our mind at the door, make some irrational Kierkegaardian existential leap of faith in order to experience this Christianity. It's rational. It makes sense. You just take God at his word. Notice that Paul remains respectful of Festus. Take a note when you talk politics and when you talk religion that Paul says to Festus, who just cut him down as an ignoramus, most excellent Festus. I like that. Remember that. You will never be sad for being classy. But when you try to insult somebody else who insults you, why? I get, we get angry, we want to puff up a little bit, but I love this, that Paul isn't about returning insult for insult. Paul knows that Agrippa, though, is the man to address here, and he knows that he's the one that they're trying to convince, and so he turns his attention to him, starting with verse 26, for the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also to all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains." Now, Paul uses an expression, except in a corner, to express how open Christianity has been. Jesus Christ was not some, you know, secret, something clandestine or, or unsavory to cover up. Followers were not some obscure offshoot that was completely unknown to people. Instead, the events of Jesus' life were in the open for us to consider, to check the evidence. And Paul's testimony to Christ was the same, open for everybody. He met with the Athenians in the public square and addressed them in the Areopagus. That was kind of the, where you know, public discourse, debates took place. Let's test this thing called Jesus risen from the dead. He stood before the magistrates of Philippi and before the proconsul Galileo in Corinth. He had preached to crowds and to the Jewish Sanhedrin, anybody that would listen. His case was heard by the Roman governors, Felix and Festus, and now by the Jewish king himself. So Paul's activity was full, and in public view, it was not done in a corner. And it was done with the message that this is open for all races, Gentile and Jew. 
every nationality. And Agrippa himself was certainly familiar with Christianity because of its heritage in Judaism, which he was keenly aware of. And Paul, therefore, confronts Agrippa with the truth of the prophets who pointed to Christ. I mean, Agrippa, if you believe the prophets and the prophets point to Christ, then why don't you believe that Christ is the king and Messiah? Agrippa also knew that the Jews were hopeful of a a personal resurrection, and this led to belief that the resurrection can't take place. What's it such a big deal to believe that Jesus could rise from the dead? This challenged Agrippa, but he evades it. He takes a detour. He's trying to throw off the, the pressure because he knew that if he were to trust Christ, it would offend the staunch Jews and it would certainly offend the Romans. Agrippa did not want the spotlight on his decision. So he says, kind of in jest, hey, Paul, in a short time or just with a little bit more discussion, you could maybe convince me to be a Christian, ha, ha, ha. And there's a lot of people in this space trying to evade things, what we might call almost Christians. But is there really such a thing? There's Christians maybe in appearance, but they haven't truly admitted their sin. They haven't put their faith in Christ. Certainly are not truly following Jesus as their Lord. To be almost persuaded is still saying no to receiving Christ. Paul was eager to see those in the room trust Christ, to enjoy the freedom and the, and the forgiveness and the hope that he experienced. But he says, oh, but I wish you could be just like me except for this one thing, I'm locked up. <laughs> but other than that, I want you to be just like this and experience all this. You know, a lot of people come to church in Springfield, right? And there's a lot of what we call cultural Christians. But the fact is, Christ is not their true Savior, King, and Lord. And how do we know that? Why? Because they will take their political mindset, their own will, and not Christ. And and their own mindset will have the final say Not Jesus, not the Bible, when it comes to, let's say, their sex life, their money, their view of race, their view of the poor, their marriage, their purpose in life, and a host of other things. And perhaps it's a time for many of us to not evade like Agrippa and say yes to Christ, yes to God's viewpoint in the Bible, yes to his kingdom, yes to being his servant. There are a lot of people who think they have the world by the tail. They've got all that they need. They don't need Christ. And yet, like C.S. Lewis said, they're kind of like the person at the table enjoying a feast, and they say, I don't believe in cooks, and I don't believe in farmers. You know, it's not that enjoying a feast is wrong. It's thinking that's all there is. Right? 
It's incredibly short-sighted. Your life is not about what you eat or drink. It's not about the toys that you can enjoy. It's not even about the good deeds that you think you do for everybody because without the Spirit of God, without the grace of God, without the gospel of God, all our deeds are simply finite. They stop right there. Sure, they may feed a person, but without God's involvement? It's kind of like the person who's throwing a cardboard life preserver within a crowded sea. It might help a bit for a few seconds, but soon it can't carry the weight of life's waves. Verse 30, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So those who were present kind of convened privately, and they agreed that, you know, Paul being up on these charges, facing a death sentence, this is bogus. He doesn't deserve this. Even a group of Pharisees in Acts 23.9 said Paul was innocent. Claudius Lysias, the commander over the Roman cohort in Jerusalem, said that Paul was not deserving of this sentence in Acts 23.29. In Acts 25.25, Governor Festus says, I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. The only reason that he's not been set free, the text tells us, is because Paul had made an appeal to Caesar. And you're thinking, well, maybe Paul shouldn't have done that, but don't forget that every Roman had a right to do this, but once they made an appeal, local officials could not supersede that. They had to make sure that you, that person went to Caesar and made the appeal, but Paul had to do that initially to save his very life because they were wanting to kill him in a previous scenario in Jerusalem. And then when he got sent to Caesarea, again, Jews followed, they wanted to kill him. So he says, hey, I want to go see Caesar and let him decide this. And it was all, you see God's sovereign work moving the gospel from Jerusalem to Caesarea, now to Rome. Because what's going to happen in Rome? Paul's just going to continue preaching. God had this all under control. But dear friends, the episode shows us that Paul was not just transporting some kind of superior morality. I mean, am I going to do these things to die, to boldly proclaim like Paul is doing? Am I going to do that just because I think I have some superior political view or some superior morality? I don't think so. I don't think so. Paul was seeing that there's a long game here. There is, there's eternity to think of. And what prepares us to make an impact for eternity? What allows us to have hope beyond the grave? What points our heart to something in this life that transcends just what we can gain? You know, real estate and investments. Nothing wrong with those and, and vacations. But is that all there is? What truly changes the human heart? And not just changing 
circumstances, my immediate lot. I offer to you not a religion. I offer to you not just to ramp up your commitments. Like Paul, I offer to you a person, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and died with the sin of the world on his back. And that included our sin. And he rose from the grave to show his victory over sin. And he sits at the right hand of God to secure our present and future state with God. If you have claimed him, but you still have areas of your life that you know you have not submitted to him and you're calling the shots, I want to encourage you, quit evading the topic. Go to God honestly, sincerely, and allow him to move you to a point where you're dependent on Christ, even in that area. Maybe it involves repentance. That's good. Repentance can bring some joy, right? Right? Might be sorrowful for a little bit, but it brings joy. Or maybe, maybe you have been that cultural kind of Christian where you have, you know, you kind of like Jesus, but you've never really committed your life to him. I want to invite you right now to do so. I'm going to ask that we bow all our heads.